So again, we're in a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we've been looking at it for the last, we looked at it through the summer, and then we're back into it uh, until Advent. And Paul, at this point in, in uh, the letter to the Galatians, he's speaking to people who have said, I'm going to put Jesus in the center of my life. I've, I've received this, gr- this gift of grace. And I'm going to put Jesus in the center, and I'm going to turn my life towards him. I'm, I'm just committed to that pattern of living. And then he's, in the last two weeks, we talked about two things that that means. The first is that that means that we are heirs, or sorry, that we're adopted people. That God has said, I want you. That we're children of God. That we're people that God loves. And the words that, that are spoken over Jesus are true of each of us. If, if you're committed to this kind of life, to putting Jesus in the center and continually turning your life towards him, that you are loved. That the words spoken at Jesus' baptism, you are my beloved son, I'm pleased in you. These are the words that are spoken over you. And then that you are heirs, that you're, you receive the inheritance of God. And so that was the first week. And then last week we looked at another thing that's true about us, that we are free. And Paul here is saying that we're not just free from certain things, although that's true. We tend to focus on that as a church. But that we're also free to. We're free to become new people. We're free to become people that look like Jesus, to live in a free way. And today we're going to look at a third uh, thing that Paul says. For those of us who are centered on Jesus, we've received grace and we're turning our lives towards him. We're, we're committed to this pattern of becoming more like Jesus. So chapter 5, verse 16, Paul writes... I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly, certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So what is Paul saying here? What's the third thing that characterizes people who put Jesus at the center and are committed to turning our lives towards him? He says, those kinds of people are people who are in a battle. People who are in a battle. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's not something that comes to mind when I think about what it means to follow Jesus. In my mind, the, the story arc kind of goes something like this. Jesus is done. Jesus is won. I've received Jesus into my life. Now it's kind of like all good. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's actually saying that part of following Jesus is actually entering into some sort of a battle. And battles by their nature are not easy. They're difficult. That's why they are called battles or wars. There's something going on here. So let's look at this battle metaphor a little bit more, what Paul is saying. So who's in this battle? There's two different uh, opponents. There's the spirit, and then there's the flesh. Now, first about this, Paul tends to write in polarities. So all throughout the letter to the Galatians, if you read it, he'll say, it's either this or this. Here's what one author, John Barclay, uh, says in his commentary. He says, Galatians is characterized by a starkly antithetical rhetoric. So the language of it is very stark that there's either A or not A. It's antithesis. Paul typically sets before his hearers two and only two alternatives. And this is one of the main reasons I think that, that people like us, maybe in Vancouver, we live in a very pluralistic society. We, don't li- we tend not to like Paul. Is because he seems too brash. He seems too black and white for us. And we want to say, hey, Paul, there's often a lot of shades of gray here. But Paul is doing this for a purpose. He's trying to make it very clear for us that there's a way of following and a way of not following. And so he sets out these polarities throughout the, uh, throughout the letter. Law and grace. You can be a slave or you can be a son. And here he's saying you can be someone who is led by the spirit or you can be led by the flesh. So let's look at these two. 
So on one hand, we have the flesh. Now, this doesn't mean your physical body. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you'll know on page one, it talks about people having a body, that we are made into a body, dirt and divine breath. And what does God say about this mixture, about us having a body? The word that's used again and again, seven times actually, in the first narrative is that it's good. To be embodied is good. And then the last chapter of the story, not the last chapter of the book of the Bible, but the last chapter of the story that we live out is is new creation. And in that part of the story, are we disembodied spirits just floating around? No, we're re-embodied people. And so to have a body for, for God is part of his story, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But uh, our bodies are also broken. Like the rest of the world, sin cracks everything about us, including our embodied experience. And so what Paul is talking about here when he says the flesh is not necessarily our physical bodies, but the ways that we've turned ourselves away from Jesus. So all on this one, all of the red arrows, any, any, any one of us that's turned ourselves fully away from God, or the places that we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us, not allowing ourselves to be unchanged or not allowing ourselves to be changed by the gospel or the places where we partner with the dark forces in the world rather than partnering with God. On the other hand, we have the flesh, or the spirit, sorry. That's the flesh, this is the spirit. And the spirit as well doesn't mean the non-physical part of us, but rather it's the places that we partner with God's spirit. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. God's the breath of God, the life of God, the presence of God, where we allow that to invade who we are and set us in a course and a direction towards becoming people that look like Jesus. That's what the Spirit means. Now, two things I want us to notice here before we kind of look at the next section of this passage. So we're in a battle, but both the flesh and the Spirit, Paul says, they have desires. They have desires. And the Greek word that's used here is the word epithemia. Epithemia. Let me tell you what Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, says about this word. He says, literally, epithemia means over-desire, an inordinate desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. This is crucial. Our main, the main problem our heart has is not so much desire for bad things, but our over-desire for good things. I'm going to read that sentence again. The main problem that Paul is saying here is that our heart has is not so much a desire for bad things but our over-desire for good things. When a good thing becomes our God, it creates an over-desire, an epithemia. And Paul says that sinful desires become deep things that drive and control us. So Paul is saying that our desires, the desires that we have as human beings are good. The desire for food, the desire for sex, the desire for comfort, the desire for security, all of these things are, are good. And when we allow them to become attached, or but when we allow them to become attached to good things, to created things, and not to the creator or God, that's where they really go awry, and they really go wrong. And not only that, but they gain a power over us. They become over-desires. So that's the bad news, is that the flesh has desires. But there's good news in that that's the spirit has desires as well. Now in the Greek, it doesn't say that the spirit has over-desires. Epithemia doesn't use the same word. But it's, it's a strong, strong desire. This urge that God has, that the spirit has for us to become people who look like Jesus. That there's actually a desire because the spirit is a person. That we become people who look like Jesus and we're remade into what we were always made to be. And this is interesting, uh, I think, especially in our world, because as Christians, I think we generally 
talk a lot more about what we believe, what we think, rather than what we desire. And what we think are usually the things that make up the boundaries that we've been talking about, our behaviors and our thoughts. Or if you're part of kind of a fuzzy way of thinking about church, they're the things that you try to reject, the way that maybe your parents thought or the way that the church is portrayed in the media. But Paul is asking us to actually focus on something quite different here. He's saying focus on not what you think necessarily, not that that's not important, but the heart of the issue is your desire. What do you want? James K. Smith wrote a great book called You Are What You Love, and I want to quote him extensively here because I think he says this so much better than I could. He says, what do you want? That is the question. It's the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. Our wants and our longings and our desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. See, see the order there? It's what we want. That's the most primary thing about us. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So it turns out this verse is not actually about making sure women don't date till they're 21. Uh, guarding their heart. It's actually about watching what we love, being careful about the orientation of our desires. So discipleship, he continues, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be attentive and intentional about what you love. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision that's encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what Paul, or Jesus means when he uses this phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just form our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't con- content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He's a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. I love this quote, and I think it really puts like very starkly where we get off on the wrong foot in Christian discipleship. Because for many of us, we know a lot about Jesus. We know a lot about God. You sat in maybe hundreds or thousands of sermons just like this, and you've got things deposited into your head. You know, James K. Smith, in his book, he uses the, the visual. He says we're like brains on a stick. That's how we think of ourselves as Christians. Just deposit more information into the brain. And of course, we're whole body people. That's what the Bible says. But we're not just brains. He's talking about something uh, so much more that we need to be formed by our hearts. And so the problem with that way of thinking is that we're brains on a stick, is that we leave this place, and all of a sudden we're going out and our hearts are being formed by something else. By every advertisement that we see, by everything that we do on our phone. And, and it's, we're not being counterformed in the places of our hearts. And so our hearts don't long for the kingdom of God. Our desires are pointed in one direction and our brains are pointed in another. And so what does Paul say in this passage? What ends up happening? We do what we don't want to do. We know what to do, but we feel completely unable to do it because our hearts actually are running in a very different direction. So what Paul is saying in this passage is so important for us. The battle here he's talking about is not simply for our minds. It's actually for what we love. What do you love? 
A fundamental question. So the second thing I want us to notice really quickly is that Paul is, is also saying we have a choice in what we love. We have a choice in who we follow. We have a choice in what we do. One of my friends said it this way to me. He said, you know, before I was a Christian, I was a true, the truest sense of a loser. If you have never heard that word before, it's a word we used in the late 90s and early 2000s to refer to people who weren't, weren't winners, or ourselves if we weren't winners. And he said, I'm the true sense of a loser because I would try to be good and I would lose. I would try to be faithful, and I would lose. I would try to be self-control, and I would lose. I, I couldn't do it. And then even when I could, in the moments where I'd find myself being faithful, I would find that I became a person who was prideful, a person who looked down on other people. And, and so I was losing all the time. And so the good news, he said, for me, is with God's spirit in me, I can now win. There's a choice that I can make about who I'm going to partner with. Because the Spirit of God in us is the evidence that Jesus Christ has won. That he has defeated sin and death, and that he has resurrected, and that he is reigning and ruling. And maybe that's what some of you need to hear this morning. Is that there is, there is hope. If there is any inkling of the Spirit at work in your life, any sense of that voice that's calling you to say you are a child of God, to say that there, there is an, a possibility that you might change to become a new human then it may be, just maybe it's true that there's a chance to partner with God. And that, you know, as uh, C.S. Lewis says, that Aslan is alive, that everything sad will become untrue, and that there's hope. If there's any inkling of, of the Spirit's work in your life, then that's true. And there's a chance for us to partner with the Spirit of God in us, that we truly can become the people that God has called us to be, to become people who are loving, as we'll see, people who are filled with grace, people who are self-controlled. There's a hope that we can partner with the Spirit to become remade to look like Jesus Christ. It's a great hope. So, what does it look like to partner with the flesh or the Spirit? How does winning or losing in this battle look? Let's, let's continue on in the passage. Verse 19, Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. I just want to pause here and, and, and note what Paul is doing. He's addressing this idea of what it means to be a bounded community. He's, he's throwing shade at it because the Jewish missionaries were coming into Galatia. This is some of the background of what's going on in this story. The Galatian people were not Jewish, but they received Jesus. They received Jesus in their own culture, and they're like, we're excited about following him. And then these Jewish missionaries came in and said, yeah, you can follow Jesus, but you need to also follow the law. Because if you don't, like, how are you going to know what to do and not to do? So you need to get circumcised. You need to obey the kosher food laws. You need to, you know, give sacrifices, these types of things. And Paul here in this passage is saying, no. Actually, you don't need those things because the works of the flesh are obvious. Which doesn't mean that we go fuzzy. It doesn't mean that everybody just does whatever they want. Paul is going to give us a long list of things of what it looks like to partner with the darkness. But he's saying this idea of being bounded, of setting up boundaries that define who's in and out based on beliefs and behaviors, is not the right way of thinking about faith. Because the works of the flesh are obvious. And then he goes on to give a long list of them. I'm going to read through them, and then we'll, we'll walk through them uh, as well, more slowly. So here's the list. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. This is Paul's list of what it looks like to partner with the dark forces in our lives, not to partner with Jesus. So I'm going to start with just giving a broad overview of of, uh, what I think Paul is saying here. So in the Bible, God is intent on building places of what is called shalom, places of peace. We sang this morning, God's peace, and it's not just simply a freedom, uh, you know, an absence of war, but it's kind of this whole world flourishing picture that God has. So I put it up on the screen like this, um, that God, this is the picture of what it means to be living in a place of shalom, that God's in the center of the world, and he's reigning and ruling, he's the true and rightful and benevolent king, and then we are in the right place underneath him. We're not God, we're images of God, and, and therefore we know ourselves, We're in right relationship with ourselves. We're also in right relationship with our neighbors, with people, because God is in the center. And then finally, we're in right relationship with our world, with our environment, with the creation. And this is the picture that God has of shalom, of the vision he has for our world. Now, Paul is saying here that all of these things that he's talking about are destructive to this. They break down the barriers between these different components, us and God, us and each other, us in our world. And so this is what Paul is trying to do. He's giving a list of things for him that move us away from this picture of flourishing. So let's look through them a little more categorically. The first three are about sex and sexuality. And Paul is saying here that there's a way of using sex and sexuality that breaks down shalom. And in the Bible, sex can be a really beautiful thing, or it has its place within the story. It's not the high point of the story, like, it's not the, you know, the, the thing that is, goes to the top, the high point of what it means to be human. I was going to use another word there to describe that, but then everyone would probably just giggle. Uh, it's the, not the high point of what it means to be human. It's also, though, not something that's dirty and nasty and filthy. You know, the Bible has 66 books. And if you think about it, of all the things that God could write about in those books, of all the things that you would want to know if you could come face-to-face with God, one of those books is a sex poem. So, for God, there's a beautiful place for sex. It's not a nasty or dirty thing. It's not also the height of what it means to be human. And I want to add one more thing that I've learned in my um, study of Galatians. In that society, especially for a man, what it meant to be a man was to be able, was to have sex with someone. And, and specifically the idea of dominating somebody. In their society, that's how you, you became a man, is going through that process. And so Paul is, is, is saying, that's not what it means, that's not what sex, sex is about either. None of those three things. It's not the high point of what it means to be human. It's not the grossest, nastiest thing about what it means to be human. And it's not about your identity as a man or a woman. Your ability to dominate someone else. Rather, for Paul, sex has a place. It's between two radically committed people in a covenant relationship, and it happens in a sacrificial, generative way that mirrors the love of God. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so when we act outside of this, the Bible says that it's destructive to all of these relationships, to our relationship with God, to our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world. And you've turned yourself away from God, and you're mobilized by another story, another spirit in the world, a spirit of self, a spirit of a different story. Now, some of you would love way more detail, and you're like, well, what about this? What about that? Well, Paul here is actually writing in somewhat of ambiguities, I would say. And so it's an invitation for us to understand the rightful place of sex in our world, 
uh, by reading the story. That's what Paul is saying. Go back and read the story and read it together. What does appropriate sex look like? And then we can understand what it looks like to walk in line with God or walk away from him. So sex and sexuality is the first thing that he addresses. The next two are idolatry and sorcery. Now these two were really big issues at the time that Paul's writing. So idolatry is worshiping something that's created rather than the creator himself, our God. And at the time of Paul's writing, there was a lot of pressure for people to worship in their local cults and their local local temples, and then also the emperor that was there. And so this was a very real thing that people were doing. And then the second is sorcery, and sorcery is an attempt to manipulate those gods in your favor. So I do something in order to try to manipulate the god that they will act in favor of me. And these were real things that the Galatians uh, practiced. You can just imagine if you're those Jewish missionaries that had come and are trying to get the Galatians to become like, like Jewish people. You could be, along with these two things, you could be like, yes, tell those dirty pagans to stop going to temple and stop doing sorcery. And Paul would agree, like, these things are not part of what it means to follow Jesus. But he also is saying something much deeper in this passage. He's saying anywhere that we put something anything. Good things. Remember what what, uh, Tim Keller said. Good things above God. It's idolatry. Our families, our homes, our RRSPs, our career aspirations. Anytime that the watermark goes like this, God gets a little lower, and those things take more of our focus and our attention and sacrifice. Paul is saying that's idolatry, and that can happen to anyone. And sorcery is the same thing the ways that we try to manipulate God. And it could be by doing good things. It could be like, you know what? I could stay at home at Thanksgiving and enjoy one of these beautiful, the last beautiful days in Vancouver, but I'm going to come to church because, and maybe it's in the back of our heads, God will kind of like owe me. I got a big promotion coming up, so, you know, I don't want to screw it up, right? And it's these ways that we subtly take on the perspective of sorcery. In our lives. And so Paul is, is saying, all of us do this. We try to manipulate God. We make God in our own image. And he says, these things turn us away from what it means to follow Jesus. The next eight are about relationships. The next eight. I think there's 13 in this list. Eight of them, over half of them, are about relationships and specifically about community. I'm going to read them again. Hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Now, one commentator said this, Most of these need little comment, since they and their liabilities to community are indeed evident. And I would agree with this commentator, what they're writing, that that, that these are, they're evidently bad. Like, nobody in here would say, hey, come join my volleyball team. It's just people that are just filled with rage and anger. There's so much dissension. It's awesome. You should come. The setters hate the liberos, and the powers hate the offside. Like, nobody's going to join that team. That's not how we market it, because we know that those kind of communities aren't good. But here's my problem with just breezing past this list, even though it is obviously not good for creating any kind of community. Here's what happens. Here's what I tend to do when I go through this passage that Paul is writing on. I look at the things that he says about sex and sexuality, and I'm like, okay, I know... That's, that's important for us to talk about. And I know that there's something there that we need to uh, have, have some direction on. And then when it comes to idolatry and sorcery, I'm like, okay, yeah, those are obviously bad. Those are things that we should not do as the people of God. But then I get to this section. 
And I'm much less decisive about what I think about this section. Because if I'm honest with myself, I see myself in this part. I am a person who will struggle with envy. I am a person who's going to let my selfish ambition get in the way of what God wants to do in my life and in our community. And so what happens is is I do something like this. I create something like this in my own mind. A boundary. Where the things that I don't struggle with, I put them outside. Oh, yes, Christians shouldn't do those things. But the things that I do struggle with, I'm like, oh, well, I mean, this is part of the human condition, isn't it? We're all trying our best, aren't we? And I've created a new bounded set for myself and for us. And, And here's the problem. If I do that, and if we all do that, and I think that many of us do, what happens? We find a church that's really hard on sex and sexuality and, and idolatry and sorcery. You know, no Harry Potter. Hard-lined about that. But we're just as hate-filled and angry and selfish as anyone else. And people from the outside look at us and they think, like, what, what's the, why would I become a Christian? to become a person who just has really high boundaries on sex ethics. And, and then I'm not helped at all. And what I see within the church is just hip, people who are hypocrites, who say we're run by the love of Jesus. But then this list is just as true inside and outside the church. And to me, that's why specifically in this section, we need to double down, I think, as a church. We need to make these things like our North Star. And it's not about becoming less passionate about the sexual ethic that God calls us to or idolatry and sorcery. It's not about putting those things on the inside and putting other things on the outside. But it's allowing God to be God. And if he gives us this list that we need to think about how we function as the people of God and as the family of God. And Paul is touching here on one of the key issues in Galatia, and I think also one of the key issues of our time, dissensions and factions within the community of God. The ways that people break off relationship because their practices and their beliefs became more important than the one who holds them together in the person of Jesus. And we think it's so stupid, don't we? When we look at Galatia, we're like, who cares if people are circumcised? Like, you all walked in here this morning, and I bet you none of you looked across and were like, I hope those people are circumcised. That probably didn't happen for anyone, and if it did, we might need to have a little chat afterwards and refer to you to counselor. So we look at the people in Galatians, and you're like, this is so stupid. Or none of you were probably thinking like, oh, I really hoped that those people ate kosher this morning, because I wouldn't want to be around them if they didn't. None of us thought that walking in the doors. But we do think this way, oh, I can't be in a church with those people if they don't share my exact theology. And you find a place that everybody agrees with me and my theology. Or I can't break bread with people if they're vaccinated or unvaccinated. If that's going to be part of the conversation, I I need to be in a space where I, I need to be free to do that. And these things break fellowship. They cause dissensions and factions. And that's why I believe it's so important for us to think about this and why the way of thinking about our community as a Jesus centered community is so, so important. Not only because I think it's what scripture points to, but because it gives us a model to become the kinds of people who don't fracture over every theological disagreement and aren't characterized by envy and anger and don't find our identities by us and them. But rather, we find our identity and our hope in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for the people that I know in this city, that's what they long to see. That's what their hope is. 
uh, they, we see a world that's unbelievably polarized, and they just want to see one group of people who might be able to get around that, and to have people who disagree with each other but are united by something greater and bigger. And I just wonder if Jesus couldn't be that thing. Is that not what he came to do in Galatians, and is that not what he invites us into? Okay, so Paul here has talked about sex and sexuality, then he's talked about idolatry, and then he's talked about how we organize ourselves as people, community. And the last two here are about overindulgence. So drunkenness is about drinking too much so that your life turns into partnership with the dark forces, with the flesh, rather than with Jesus in your words, in your deeds, in your actions, in your thoughts. The second is carousing, which is probably my favorite word in uh, this passage, just because I feel like it needs to be... I, I, I instantly transport myself back to being like seven years old, and some old person is like, stop carousing! And you're just like, I don't even know what that means. But I, I know I'm doing something wrong. And it just brings up all these like other things that they might yell, like old-timey things where like, stop lollygagging, or stop glad-handing. And you're like, I don't know what... I, okay, sounds... But it's... It's just one of those old-timey words. But the idea here is, is that people at that time would have parties that they would go to. And they'd be par- parties of overindulgence, whether with drink, but with like everything that was happening. So food. So they would eat more than their bodies needed. And it would be like this big celebration of uh, this kind of lifestyle, I should say, of overindulging with food. And it was happening while other people, specifically their brothers and sisters, didn't have enough. That's what he's talking about here, this kind of a lifestyle. And so we're called to actually celebrate as followers of Jesus. That's an important rhythm in our lives, but it's this lifestyle, and it's this way of thinking about overindulgence, especially with food at that time, when others are in need. And I think this is helpful for us to extend this idea. Where might we be doing the same thing? Where might I, in my own life, be taking up more space, or time, or money? Where might I have too many possessions, or even in conversation, where might I be taking up too much airtime at the you know, expense of other people? It's an overindulgence, a focus on me and my wants and my needs. So Paul writes all these things, and then he says, the last cent- uh, part of it is he says, and anything similar. Which I kind of feel like it's just like he was like had to go to the bathroom or something, and he's just like, you know, the other stuff that you shouldn't be doing. And if you're like me, you're like, ah, maybe you could spell it out for us, though. That feels like, um, just be a bit more specific. And it is, this list is super important, and it should 100% guide us as followers of Jesus today. But Paul is also saying with this last phrase here that he's not limiting it to this list. In my research, this list is very specific to what's going on in the Galatian church at the time. Each one of these things are things that we could spend a lot of time talking about in the history, which I'll try not to bore you with. But Paul is saying with this last phrase that there's going to be specific things in our city, in our family, in our time, in our moment that we need to stop in order to become like Jesus. And then once again, it's an invitation back to the story of God to immerse ourselves in that story, and especially in the person of Jesus, to go back to Jesus and say, what kind of things did he seem to discourage in order that he can become, we can become people that look like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So this is Paul's list, and then he writes, and I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I wanted to say one thing about this. He's talking here about practice continual, habitual 
action in the same direction. If you remember back to last week, Leslie Jameson's beautiful words, she talks about addiction as this pattern. It starts as a story where you think you're free, but you end up in the story, same story as everybody else. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. That just becomes the hamster wheel of your life. And that's what Paul is saying here. When our lives take on this pattern, and we're people who are focused away from the, the way of God. And, and, and therefore, it's, it's an attitude more than anything. Because some of these things will be true of us before we even leave this room today. Like some of us might walk out to go to the bathroom and then we see somebody wearing a sweater that we have. And we're like, oh, she looks so much better in that sweater than me. I wish. And then it's like, oh, envy. Right there. Just did it. On the way out of church. So these things are going to happen to us, but it's about the attitude that we have. Are we open to God calling us back away from that attitude towards him? So this is the bad news, but then Paul gives us the good news. He says, so that's, that's what it looks like to, to partner with the flesh, but then he says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'll be much shorter about the fruit of the Spirit. I want us to notice three things. First, it's singular. So many uh, theologians have puzzled over this because what Paul is actually saying here is not fruits of the Spirit, but it's just fruit. And I think what he's saying here is that they grow together. They grow slowly. And therefore, you can't be a person who's like, oh yeah, I'm super gentle, but I have no peace inside of me. Paul's not interested in that because we're following a person. We're following a rabbi of Jesus and we're going to become like him in many different ways. And there might be certain things that God calls you to. Like even as I read this list, there might be certain things that ping in you that the Holy Spirit is pointing out and saying, like, hey, that's not true of your life. And so you might want to put some habits into your life to focus on that. How do I cultivate joy in my life if that's something I'm lacking? But grow together. The second is that they're rehumanizing qualities. That they're all things, these are all characteristics that are true of Jesus. And therefore, as we become new humans, as we become remade, they're also all things that become true of us. As we become people that look like Jesus. And then the third is, is that they're characteristics that create shalom. They're characteristics of people that fit into that story of God. That he's in the center, that we know ourselves and we're radiating out his love into the world. That they help us, in other words, to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love the world. That I've received this grace from Jesus. He's at the center of my life and therefore I'm becoming more like him and I can bless the world. Paul says, there's no law against these things. And here again, he's throwing shade at the bounded set community who is coming and saying to Paul um, that we need these laws in order for people to know the direction. Now, Paul is not saying here necessarily that there will be no country that creates laws about um, you know, joy or self-control. Um, you know, maybe that's what our country is up to these days. It's like, you want to be self-controlled? You need to get out of here or go into jail. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying two things, that none of the laws of Moses go against these things. That these, the laws of Moses were always trying to create these types of people. And then second, that there's no way of becoming this type of person through a bounded mentality. Because these are all pursuits. These are all things that we become. They're, they're, they look like Jesus. And so they're, they're things that we head in the direction of. They're not a boundary that we cross. And the moment that we think we do cross the boundary, like, I'm loving enough. Like, oh, I'm, I'm so much more loving than, you know, Karsten. I, I love way more, better than him. 
I'm just picking on you. I just came in the door. But it's just like, I can't believe how much more loving I am than him. And then as soon as I do, all of a sudden I've created another boundary, haven't I? Yeah, I've, I've done that. And so Paul says these are pursuits rather than a line that we cross. And the moment we make them into a boundary, we fail. And it becomes about losing and it becomes about being average in our community. It's like, what kind of a community are we? We're a community of people. The average here is about a 7 out of 10 in love. So if you could just kind of get there, that will be good enough for us. And we lose this vision of what it means to be people who are loved by God, that you are accepted, that you are loved, but you're also called to exhibit and embody the infinite love of Jesus. People who can always grow into that. Paul continues, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. N.T. Wright says about this, These qualities are, in short, like virtues. Things that you have to think through, work at, cultivate, and practice. There's an invitation for us to participate in becoming these kinds of people, that God's grace and Jesus at the center and the gift of the Spirit are all compelling us to become in this direction. And the invitation is like a hand reaching out into your life. Will you become more loving? Will you walk away from these types of things? Will you take my hand and partner with me to become a person who looks like Jesus? And that's why in our community we talk so much about the rule of life. What are the practices in your life? What are the, the trellises that help your vine grow to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? We're going to close up here in, in just one second, but I just want to say one thing really quickly before I do. You know, I think in our community, and I think in just in general, most of us come from a bounded set way of thinking. And so when we talk about becoming Jesus-centered, there's some fear that comes. And the fear is probably, how will we know? Like, how can we, if we don't have, like, very clear beliefs about everything, how will we function together as a group of people? How we are. And I understand the fear completely. But I want to point out this passage gives us a different way forward. And, and it's a very important one for me in, in helping me, in, in pushing me in the direction of becoming a Jesus-centered church. Because it gives us a different and new focus. It asks us to focus on something different. Becoming these kinds of people. And it doesn't mean our beliefs are not important. But it's asking us instead to put something out in front. What if instead we were people, this became the North Star for us? That we were the kinds of people that are embodied by love. We're known for love. We're known for a group of people who are not creating dissensions and envy, but rather people who are gentle with one another, who love one another, who are joyful. And that's the kind of community that we're looking to create. And I'll just say one more thing about it. You know, I have friends that have completely different theological perspectives than me. I disagree with them about almost everything. We just agree about Jesus. And I've found that some of them are people who unbelievably bear the fruit of Jesus. And then I have friends who agree with me about all my theological beliefs. So they're right. Praise God. Uh, just like me. And some of them bear none of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. And I'll say this about this community as well. We've had a bounded set community in the past. I'm not saying all of the things we believe were right or wrong. But we've had some people who have come into our community and they agree with all of our statement of faith stuff. And yet, this stuff, there's none of it in their lives. 
If you ask them to write out our statement of faith in Greek, they probably could do it. But this stuff, none of it. And we've had other people who have come into this community and they're questioning. Maybe they disagree on half of the things we do. But the fruit of the Spirit is so evident and they believe in Jesus. And so I just think, it's not that our theology is unimportant or that I have no theological opinions, but what if instead we said, oh yeah, Jesus is the most important thing to me. And we didn't look at our differing opinions as a bug, but we said, oh, this is just a feature, actually, of being part of the community, that you bring your story, and you bring your perspective, and we learn together, and we made this our North Star, that we are people who are characterized first and foremost by Jesus and by these things. What kind of community might we create? And that's what I think Paul is trying to say. This, for him, is theology. This, for him, is the center of what it means to be a group of people that love Jesus. Okay, let's close by looking uh, at a final question. How do we fight? If this is the battle we're invited into, how do we fight? And there's just three things I want to say as we close. The first is that we fight together. You know, in this passage, it's filled with yous. So, uh, for example, in verse 18, it says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But in Greek, these are actually all y'alls. They're not you, they're y'alls. I took my Greek from a professor in Texas, and he said, this is why Texan is the, is the heavenly language, because we have a y'all, okay? And uh, that sent shivers down my spine. Like, imagine if we got to heaven and Jesus was like, hey, y'all, how you doing? I'd be like, oh, boy, wrong place. Um, but here's what N.T. Wright says about this. The point about the Spirit and with the whole point of Christian ethics is that it means rehumanization. It's about, beco- it's about becoming more fully human together. That last word, together. That... A call to partner with God is always a call to partner with God's people. That we need each other to call us to Christ-likeness. We need each other to bear this fruit. We bear it together. We need people to come alongside us and say, oh, and you thought you were just actually all been meeting, and uh, turns out you're not. Okay? We need each other to, to say, to point out those areas where we don't have the fruit of the Spirit, and also to do the opposite to come to each other and say, oh, you know what? When you come in the room, I've just noticed that you're a person that just brings God's peace. And you may not know that yourself, but we can call out those fruits of the Spirit in each other to encourage each other along the way. We need to battle together. The second is that we fight slowly. You know, when I think of a fight, I kind of think of, you know, Braveheart or something like that. Uh, Kind of this, like, let's ramp up to this great moment. Let's get all excited. But Paul uses very different language. He says, oh, you want to go into a battle? Then you need to learn to walk with the Spirit. You need to learn to bear fruit. These are not fast things. These are slow, slow processes. And, And I think we often think about it this way. Why doesn't God just zap me and make me humble? Or why doesn't God just zap me and make me more loving? But that's not the way he works. And part of the reason is because he cares about you. He actually wants to bring the fruit of the Spirit, all of these characteristics, true in your life. That you are like, uh, kind of like a diamond, let's put it that way. That's going to reflect, refract the glory of God in a very specific way. And it's going to take time in order for you to become that person. He's concerned about you because he actually wants his life and the life of Christ to reflect through your life. And that's going to take time. And he's also much more concerned about the process than he is about the outcome. He cares about the outcome. That's what Paul is writing here. But he cares so much more, rather than zap you and make you all of these things, that the moment-by-moment turning, 
where you say, oh, I'm walking away, but I'm turning back to become like Jesus. That is the pattern of the Christian life. And he wants us to learn that pattern where we turn towards him again. So we fight slowly. So we fight together, we fight slowly, and finally we fight singing. James K. Smith, I quoted him earlier from his book, You Are What You Love. He, he ends his quote like this. How do we learn to love? How do we learn to love? He says it's through worship, of which singing is one of them. Worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and our longings so that our cultural endeavors are indexed towards God and his kingdom. If you're passionate about seeking justice, renewing culture, and taking up your vocation to unfurl all of creation's potential, if you're interested in, in other words, in bearing fruit, then you need to invest in the formation of your imagination. You need to curate your heart. You need to worship well. Because you are what you love. So let's fight together as invite the band up. Let's close in prayer. And let's respond in worship as we fight singing with each other. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage and uh, for this invitation to become like Jesus. So I pray for each of us that we would hear your invitation, like I said, that we would see your hand of your spirit reaching out to us and that we would take your hand to become the people that you've called us to become. As we sing now, may these words become more than just words that we say, but would they become things that are true of us? Would they be shaping our loves to become more like you and to gain a vision for your kingdom? So we ask that uh, you would lead and guide us as we sing together, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.